Earlier this summer, two contrasting stories of state transportation policy caught my attention. As more than a dozen states made plans to join California in phasing out sales of new gasoline-powered cars, Republicans in North Carolina unveiled a proposal to effectively ban free charging stations for electric vehicles. It was a silly, almost trolling policy, which made it a perfect illustration of modern federalism, our system of local control, in action. In the U.S. today, which side of the Colorado-Kansas border you reside on determines whether you can purchase legal cannabis from a well-appointed dispensary or whether a first-time marijuana possession charge might land you in jail for six months. Teachers in Oklahoma are suspended for sharing links to libraries in New York. As states run by Democrats have moved to expand access to health care and the ballot, states run by Republicans have heavily restricted both. The Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade and the widely varying state abortion restrictions that it enabled made clear what some researchers have been arguing for years. State governments haven't been this powerful and this far apart in governance for a generation. But as the disparities in policy among the states grow larger, our news media, political donations, and our electoral cycles are more nationalized than ever. The old saw that all politics is local looks increasingly out of date. In the 21st century U.S., all local politics is national. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. We're talking now with Jacob Grumbach, the author of the new book, Laboratories Against Democracy. Jake, the title of your book is a play on the idea articulated by Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis that states are the laboratories of democracy. What did he mean by that? What was the laboratory of democracy meant to be? So Louis Brandeis coined the term to suggest that states can do these policy experiments, generating new types of policies to respond to their constituents, and that other states could emulate the successful experiments and reject the failed experiments in the states. And, you know, wouldn't it be a shame if we just had one laboratory, the national government? So it was an argument in favor of having a lot of leeway at the state level. American federalism. And that comes after a long tradition of other arguments in support of American federalism and decentralization of authority in the U.S. Constitution. When Brandeis coined that phrase, he was thinking in a particular moment, kind of coming out of the progressive era when people were enthusiastic about this idea of like experts crafting the best policy and seeing what works and then honing it. Is it just the case that that policy climate doesn't exist anymore? And when it doesn't exist, the idea of these laboratories doesn't really make sense. What I'm arguing now is the rise of national parties, where the Democratic and Republican parties are two national teams, and the Republican Party has become particularly extreme in opposition to Democratic institutions, that this actually has collided with that decentralized system to really threaten American democracy. So those potential virtues of federalism have really fallen away. And now states are operating mostly as laboratories against democracy. Right now, because the parties are two national teams, state governments don't look to other states' successful policy experiments when they're made by the other parties. So after the financial crisis of 2008, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin, neighboring states, super similar. Minnesota is doing a sort of relatively decent job getting out of the crisis, rehiring public sector workers, building back the economy, generating tax revenue. Scott Walker's Republican Wisconsin is not looking across the Minnesota border and being like, oh, we have to emulate this. Now it's done within two national sort of party networks. 
Whereas before, Brandeis was kind of right that states might look across the country for successful policies. I don't have statistical evidence of whether that was true back then, but it's not really true now. Mm-hmm. Right. That was the goal back then, at least. And when Alex and I were talking about this, we were talking about the idea that politicians are not copying successful policy in terms of like policy that delivers the results on those policy objectives, but they're copying things that work electorally. That's a nice point. But even electorally, they only copy the successful electorally, politically successful policies from the same party. So that is a big shift. To get into more sort of historical context here, your book is sort of, I think, in part exploding the cliche or the truism that all politics is local. And it seems to me that you can have it sort of two ways with your thesis here. All politics is not local in the sense that when Scott Walker was in charge of Wisconsin, his eye was on the national scene, on the national sort of Republican Party policy priorities and the national networks. And then at the same time, politics is local in the sense that the states have an incredible amount of authority over the people residing in them. They have a huge amount of power over the lives of the people in them which it seems like an interesting change. That's really, really well summarized. We have national parties, national politicians with national ambitions, national interest group networks that are focused on a battle over the direction of the country. But ironically, what the effect of that nationalization of politics is, is that the states actually institutionally become even more important. So now politicians and political activists who are operating in local and state politics are doing so for these national ambitions. So this is how you get, for example, the threat of a state legislature giving electoral college votes to a presidential candidate who doesn't win the vote in their state for, you know, national ambitions. This is how you get even things that seem local, like debates over public school curricula and critical race theory and so forth. You might think, oh, this is like in local scoreboards. But the places that are having these sort of local politics happen aren't reacting to some sort of like recent local influx of critical race theory in your local neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's rather a national ambition, a national sort of line of conflict over culture and the direction of the country. You argue there's a lot of reasons for this nationalization of local politics. But I think a really important point in your work is who that nationalization benefits, which type of people are most easily able to navigate it. I think you make this good point that groups that are sort of national in scope, but able to operate in this fluid way across state lines have a really important advantage over, say, people who live in a state (laughs) and thus thus have ties to the state and are sort of stuck there for professional or personal or family reasons. Depending on what side of the border you live in, Minnesota or Wisconsin has a great deal of effect on what sort of government you live under. But the groups that take advantage of it are able to sort of seamlessly move from state to state. So another series of optimistic takes about federalism, one is you can vote with your feet. You know, if you don't like what's going on in your state, just move mm-hmm. to a state. Oh, you know, your state's banning abortion. You don't like that. Move to a state that's not banning abortion. <laughs> and then this, like in a strict political economy, like game theory sense, this is supposed to lead to more efficient governance, right? But the trouble is, married people, we can't just pack up and leave, you know, our social networks, our families, our jobs. So by contrast, firms, investors, capital can move very quickly now in the globalized age, very quickly across state lines, right? This can threaten investors and large taxpayers and firms can put states in a bidding war and say, I'll set up 
uh, shop in your state if you give me the most tax breaks and then states compete against each other to reduce taxes. Ordinary people, social movements, they can't, uh, I'm, we're all going to move away if you don't, uh, you know, expand Medicaid for us. Like that is not how that works. With the involvement of kind of national networks in state politics, is there a difference in effectiveness between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party at doing that? Yeah, so it really depends on the issue area there. So, you know, I came of age in the George W. Bush administration, early 2000s. It's like a classic, oh, if you care about like climate change, this is an oil executive president. You're not going to pass stuff at the national level. So fail globally, act locally. And you did get a ton of coastal states really doing new climate regulation, fuel efficiency standards. States on the West Coast raised taxes on the wealthy after the financial crisis. Uh, You know, Medicaid expanded after the Affordable Care Act in every blue state and most purple states disproportionately by Democrats. So like liberals and Democrats have been successful in some areas in changing policy prior to the Supreme Court ruling that gay marriage was legal. You know, states passed gay marriage laws. And on the Republican side, you see it very powerfully in other areas, too. Like prior to the Dobbs Supreme Court abortion decision, huge restrictions on abortion being innovated in conservative states cutting taxes on the wealthy, deregulating the environment, making it easier to get high-powered guns. And the big, big thing, restricting labor unions and really dismantling labor unions in especially the Midwest in the 2010s. So in all of these, there's like, I'd say some symmetry there, support for a different movement on those different areas in different directions. But then when it comes to democracy itself, the big story is backsliding in the red states. And so democratic backsliding, for people who aren't familiar with that term, it means erosion of the institutions that support democracy. That's exactly right. So it's basically how accessible it is to vote. It's about whether states respond to public opinion, whether they pass policy that's congruent with the preferences of the majorities that live in their states. It's about uh, sort of election integrity you know, post-election audits and fair vote counting. And I think probably the most important one I measure is gerrymandering. I think we understate how big a deal gerrymandering is, but, you know, Mm. in Wisconsin in 2018, for example, like you can often get the case where, you know, 35, 40% of voters in that disproportionately rural, whiter, more conservative, wealthier voters in these states sets the majority of the state legislature. So the votes from these more rural constituents count towards the outcomes in sometimes multiple times more than an urban constituent. So at this Wisconsin and North Carolina really set records and the influence of a vote from Madison or Milwaukee, the cities, is so much weaker than the nicely gerrymandered exurban districts. And that really makes those sort of conservative voters much more influential over what the state does. And that's been a huge force in Democratic backsliding over the past 20 years, but especially since 2010. I think that's a really, really important point to get back to some of the myths we're talking about here about federalism and about state governments being sort of closer to the democratic ideal because they're closer to the people. I think you sort of note that on all of these issues, public opinion in quote unquote red states, blue states and purple states, public opinion can be fairly static on all of these issues, but policy outcomes can diverge wildly. And you wouldn't expect that to be the case if states were reflecting the wills of their unique regional electorate, right? That wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the case. 
have such wildly diverging policy outcomes with static public opinion in all of these different states. It's actually which states sort of count which votes, right? Exactly. So in some areas, you know, sort of responsiveness to public opinion has been pretty great. So on like LGBT or really like LGB rights mm. over those years in the 2000s, like that was highly responsive. Marijuana policy highly responsive, often through ballot initiatives. States first legalized medical marijuana, then full recreational marijuana. That really does seem to be popular movement there. And those are two areas that like culture and public opinion have really shifted since we were really young. So those are really responsive policy areas. But on other things, there are huge swings based on when the party that controls the government switches. That idea that you see big swings in policy without swings in public opinion over time within a state, like Wisconsin in that example, that suggests that national organizations and groups are really driving the policy agenda rather than the old school, you know, I'm a highly localized state legislature that really is focused on state and local politics in my state. So one of the idealistic ideas behind federalism, as the founders intended it, was it's supposed to protect us against some national tyrant. But in the U.S., we've got dozens and dozens of local petty tyrants with basically absolute authority. Like sheriffs are the best example or these unrepresentative state legislatures in various states. We have very few protections against these petty tyrants as opposed to the boogeyman of the one big national one. And not just, they're not confined to their little tyrannies in the states. Like, they regulate elections at all levels. So mm -hmm. a petty local tyrant is affecting, like, who wins national office in the presidency, in the Senate, in Congress. That's a really, really unique and big deal. So what do you see as the way out of this situation? One way of responding to the power states have is to put more resources into state-level races and try and take over state legislatures. Do you think that makes sense or are we missing something? Yeah, so I think uh, one point on democracy itself, it's clear that you need national baseline rules to prevent states from threatening democratic institutions because states regulate elections from local dog catcher up to president. Every election is state administered. Same thing with districting, like they district for state legislative seats for the state government and for the U.S. House and Congress. So what the states do really matters. And now they could potentially subvert or essentially steal a presidential election, depending on what the Supreme Court says. All this means national rules really crucial. But as usual, you know, things pass the U.S. House and then get stuck in the Senate. So clearly you need more political capacity to be able to do policies like this. And I think the most underemphasized way to build pro-democracy capacity is the labor movement. But other social movements, you know, when people authentically get interested in issues of democracy itself, like in the civil rights movement, and now, like, there is increasing interest in sort of small d democracy and in institutions, that's amazing too, and getting involved is crucial. But overall, the move has to be towards national policy that limits sort of what states are able to do. Updating policy at the national level is just crucial for any functioning society. All right, Jake, thank you so much for taking the time. That was great. Thanks for having me. After the break, we'll be talking about what's at stake at the local level in this year's elections. We're joined now by Aaron Kleinman, the director of research at The States Project, 
an organization dedicated to improving people's lives through state legislatures. Aaron, thanks so much for talking to us today. Alex and uh, Laura, thanks you so much for having me. So if you pay attention to the sort of national political media, or if you're a member of the national political media, the midterm elections that we have been hearing a lot about are Congress and then uh, a, a couple races like John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz, Senate races, congressional races, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party's approval rate. What are the most important elections that the media hasn't been talking about and that most people probably haven't been paying as much attention to? The short answer is it's state legislative races across the nation. But if you want to just focus in on a few states, I would say the states with the closest chamber control right now are probably those in Michigan and Arizona. In Michigan, we are two seats away from breaking Republican control of the House and three seats away in the Senate. And in Arizona, it's one seat in each chamber. In both of those states, you could see Democrats feasibly control a chamber for the first time in decades. Those are going to be the two states that probably, for the casual observer, you would be most interested in following. Our other guest talks about the power states have over the people who live in them, and hence the importance of state government. But your organization, I think, has another argument that I've seen you make, too, which is, while it is obviously important who runs these states – Electorally, it's also the case that you, you listening, you listeners, but uh, a, a, an engaged person can have an outsized effect on political outcomes in these kinds of races compared to the much more national ones. Yeah, that's correct. And so going back to Arizona and Michigan, in 2020, if a few thousand votes had flipped in either state, you would have seen Democrats end up controlling those chambers. And then if you look at kind of how much is spent on these races, use Fetterman and Oz as an example, a competitive House race in Michigan is going to cost like 3% or even less than what John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz spend on their U.S. Senate race. So, you know, if you're Mike Bloomberg, sure, yeah, Senate races, you can make a huge difference in it. But if you're Joe, politics of everything listener, <laughs> you can have a much bigger impact if you want to donate to state legislative campaigns. Right. Especially with the amount of money and outside money ballooning the cost of sort of every congressional race, people might not understand that while I would imagine the dollars amounts have been increasing in these state legislative races, it's still nowhere near on the same level. Yeah, there's just this huge resource disparity between federal and state elections. And if you look at the main Senate, for example, uh, we narrowly missed getting a cap on insulin prices for all patients in the IRA. Well, in Maine, they were able to cap insulin prices at the state level. And so you can kind of see that at the state legislative level, you can really make a huge difference in people's lives. And, you know, if you're a political practitioner or a donor, it costs a fraction, a mere fraction of what it costs for federal elections. I feel like we hear about this a lot, how state legislatures can implement policy that's very impactful and that it really changes the way people are able to live. Why don't people pay attention to it? There's been a nationwide trend of polarization and nationalization. There's actually a study done that showed that there's really a stark decrease in splitting ballots when states got high-speed internet. I think there are a lot of different potential explanations. I think there's, you know, whether you're one of those people who really believes that social media kind of puts people into these ideological camps, or I think maybe a more plausible explanation is really kind of hollowing out uh, local news sources really harms candidates' ability to differentiate themselves from the national party. I think it's a really interesting question of how that nationalization has been responded to by the two different sides. And you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but 
But it feels to me like the right was a little bit ahead of the curve on this and has been prioritizing these races for a longer amount of time. Is that about right? Yeah. And it's really decades. Because if you want to go back to really the early 70s, that was still an era where the kind of post-World War II liberal consensus was still dominant within American politics. And at that time, future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, who's then the GC at the Chamber of Commerce, wrote a quick memorandum on kind of how conservatives could gain back power. And there were three major legs to the stool that the conservative movement would eventually sit on. One was building up alternate institutions, media and academics. So that's where kind of you the, the impetus for like Fox News, for the Heritage Foundation, for the Koch Network. That That's the first uh, leg of that stool. The second leg of that stool is the judiciary and installing right-wing judges both at the federal and state levels. And that's kind of how you have the Dobbs decision. And then the third was state legislatures. They saw very early on that state legislatures were uniquely powerful and uniquely under-resourced. And so they set up groups like uh, ALEC. American Legislative Exchange Council. Yes, right. And you have like Club for Growth and a lot of groups set by like Grover Norquist and Paul Weyrich. And they were really dedicated to making sure that state legislatures, especially like in the 70s, 80s and 90s, were very anti-tax, anti-regulation. And then the culmination of the effort really came in 2010 when you had the GOP Red Map Initiative, which really for the first time highly professionalized a lot of these state legislative campaigns that used to be run a, a bit on a bit more of a shoestring. And it led to kind of overwhelming majorities in the Tea Party wave here. And their first order of business became really doing ruthless gerrymanders that locked them into power. And then really it was when Trump got elected in 2016, it was when a lot of people woke up and a lot of people looked and they saw, wow, one thing that's really been going wrong is, you know, we've been ignoring state legislatures. And so groups like us, you know, we were founded in 2017 by a former New York state senator. We sprouted up to try to plug that hole. One of the questions I want to sort of put to you is, why it has sort of taken a little while for liberals and left-of-center organizations to catch up. And we have been talking about the nationalization of local politics, and it has a lot of different ways it manifests itself. And I think what's interesting is that, from my perspective, the nationalization of politics on the right has meant these well-funded, well-organized national organizations kind of consolidating power in state legislative races. And if you want to talk about the electoral movement, I think the idea about the media being nationalized, local institutions being hollowed out, local newspapers being hollowed out, Sinclair, Fox News, talk radio, all these things, you know, social media having an effect in what local voters do. But it, it does seem to me that for the last decade, the nationalization of politics for liberals has not translated the same way. Like people get excited about these national figures that are challenging hated Republicans, but that energy has not been funneled, except by groups like yours, which is trying to do it. But that energy has not been funneled to these smaller races in the same way that the right has managed to channel their money and energy. Yeah, Alex, I, you know, that's something I think about a lot. It's the new right that really developed all these organizations that built power. And at the same time, the new left was developing. And if you look at the new left and the organizations on our side that were being founded around that time, I think they had a view that the next battle was really kind of through litigation. The next battle was through very DC-centered fights. And I think a big problem with focusing activist energy at litigation is that there's not a lot of you know ways that you can really kind of build 
community around it. And especially if you look at kind of the concomitant decline in organized labor, you know, organized labor has really big stakes in who runs state government in a way that a liberal activist does not. And so you kind of lost what you're supposed to organize around and kind of got basically sucked into this never-ending need for money for litigation while the right was changing who the judges were, making the prospects for that litigation to succeed less likely. Do you see, having been at this for a little while, is there a national left-of-center strategy? Are the big groups beginning to, you know, plan what to do about fundamentally gerrymandered states and states that are rejecting democracy and states that are sort of increasingly restricting the franchise and all these other things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, the Dobbs decision, I think for people who hadn't already woken up, that was the wake up. It was, you know, this is now a fight in 50 state capitals. You better have a strategy to at least minimize the fallout for those very, very red states. Yeah, it'll probably take a while and a real shift in the culture and the politics to make a huge difference in them. But for now, people have realized that, yes, state capitals really do matter. I have seen that a lot of groups that maybe weren't as focused on states in the past really care a lot about them now. And it's not just the groups, but it's also the rank and file, the activists. People really know just how important these are. If you live in one of these states that has a state legislature that could go to either party or where the supermajority means a lot, going door to door and talk to your neighbors is a huge deal. And it's things that you can do that's free of cost to you. But if you want to give money, statesproject.org, we have a lot of different ways for you to get involved. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for making the time. It's good talking to you. Thanks so much, Alex. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate the show. Every rating and review helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.